Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. We'll begin in prayer with uh, Doctor. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to eat into a couple minutes of your presentation this evening, beginning with St. Patrick's Breastplate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I bind to myself today the strong virtue of the invocation of the Trinity. I believe the Trinity in unity, the creator of the universe. I bind to myself today the virtue of the incarnation of Christ with his baptism, the virtue of his crucifixion with his burial, the virtue of his resurrection with his ascension, the virtue of his coming on the judgment day. I bind to myself today the virtue of the love of the seraphim, the obedience of the angels, in the hope of resurrection unto reward, in prayers of patriarchs, in predictions of prophets, in preaching of apostles, in faith of confessors, in purity of holy virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I bind to myself today the power of heaven, the light of the sun, the brightness of the moon, the splendor of fire, the flashing of lights, the swiftness of wind, the depth of sea, the stability of earth, the compactness of rocks. I bind to myself today God's power to guide me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to teach me, God's eye to watch over me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to give me speech, God's hand to guide me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to shelter me, God's host to secure me. Against the snares of demons, against the seductions of vices, against the lusts of nature, against everyone who, who meditates injury to me, whether far or near, whether few or with many. I invoke today all these virtues against every hostile, merciless power, which may assail my body and my soul against the incantations of false prophets, against the black laws of heathenism, against the false laws of heresy, against the deceits of idolatry, against the spells of women and smiths and druids, against every knowledge that binds the soul of man. Christ, protect me today against every poison, against burning, against drowning, against death wound, that I may receive abundant reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left, Christ in the fort, Christ in the chariot seat, Christ in the deck, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I bind to myself today the strong virtue of the invocation of the Trinity. I believe the Trinity and unity, the creator of the universe. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father.
Our speaker this evening received his PhD from the Medieval Institute at the University of Notre Dame, writing his dissertation on Old English Religious Literature. Dr. Ben Reinhardt is an assistant professor of English Language and Literature at Christendom College, where he teaches courses in classical and medieval literature. His current research interests include Anglo-Saxon manuscripts, medieval saints' lives, and modern translations of Old English poetry. He lives with his wife and children in Front Royal, Virginia, and it's always a pleasure to have with us Dr. Ben Reinhardt. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you here tonight. And I, I should begin with a confession of my own before we get to the confession of St. Patrick. I am terrified and I feel utterly inadequate to do this. Anyone who knows anything about the language families of Europe can look at my last name and realize in a split second that Ben Reinhardt is not particularly Irish. I'm Swiss on both sides of my family. And what this means is I don't have St. Patrick in my cultural DNA, as I'm sure a lot of my viewers from New York and New Jersey and, and elsewhere do. Now, it, it gets worse though, right? Because uh, what I actually study is, is English and being an outsider and being Swiss and being neutral, I don't know much, but I've picked up that there's some historical friction between those two countries. I don't understand it, but, but there it is. My, I guess my best claim to do this is I kissed the Blarney Stone once. Uh, so, so we'll see if that works. But really, unlikely ventures are gonna be one of the themes of our, our talk tonight. So I guess it's not altogether inappropriate. Now, the great thing about talking about St. Patrick to all of you uh, 21st century Americans is in modern America, everyone knows who St. Patrick was. The really, really horrible thing about talking about St. Patrick to an audience of 21st century Americans is that today, Everyone knows who St. Patrick was, or, or at least we think we do, right? And to paraphrase Mark Twain, it's not the things that we know that are the problem. It's the things that we think we know that just aren't so. So before we get to the confession itself, I'd like to take just a couple minutes and deal with what I'm going to call three fake Patricks before we get to the real Patrick. So the first fake Patrick I'm going to call kiss me, I'm Irish, Patrick, right? This is the Patrick associated with the Green River in Chicago, with green beer everywhere else, with uh, the parades, with the displays, with the shamrocks vaguely associated with leprechauns for some reason or other, right? This is the lowest common denominator, St. Patrick. Now, given that I'm talking to an ICC audience, I assume that you have a more lively devotion to St. Patrick than that lowest common denominator. It's still worth talking about that, though, because this is where our culture begins to approach St. Patrick. And once I had a very dear evangelical friend say to me, well, you say St. Patrick was such a great guy. Well, St. Patrick was such a great guy. Why on earth is his day just an excuse to get drunk in public? It's a fair question. Now, there's a fair answer. St. Patrick has as much to do with public drunkenness as Christmas has to do with overt materialism. So it's an abuse but it's where a lot of people in our culture start. Let's, let's take it a level above that. The next St. Patrick is, I guess you could call him the mythic St. Patrick. You learn about the mythic St. Patrick in first grade, around the same time you learn that George Washington chopped down the cherry tree and Abraham Lincoln lived in the little log cabin, right? This St. Patrick, he kicked the snakes out of Ireland, right? This is a little bit better because now you're actually dealing with something like a historical person that you can have some sort of attachment to, 
But again, this, this isn't the real St. Patrick. Now again, given my audience, I assume that most of us are beyond step two. And now I'm going to make us all a little bit uncomfortable. And I, I'm uncomfortable saying this myself. The third fake Patrick, or I guess, let's not call him fake. The third alternate Patrick. This is an alternate Patrick, not a fake Patrick. Well, he's the Patrick of modern Catholic piety. He's the CCC video St. Patrick, if you ever showed those to your kids. He's the St. Patrick from Adventures in Odyssey, if your kids ever listened to those tapes. He's the Patrick from the New Advent Catholic Encyclopedia from 1907. He's this St. Patrick. These stories might start to, start to sound more familiar. He's the first person to carry Christianity beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire. He's the one who came to Ireland and lit the fire on Terra Hill, the Paschal fire on Terra Hill, and upstaged the king and upstaged all the Druids. He's the one who plucked the shamrock and used it to illustrate faith in the Trinity. He's the one who won all Ireland to Christ immediately and easily and quickly with the great miracles. He's the one who, when the king and his men were waiting in ambush, he was transformed into a deer and miraculously in their sight. These are stories we know. These are stories I like. The problem with these stories is, it's not that they're, they're false. Some of them are exaggerations. The problem with the stories is they're not altogether reliable. As my CV said, I'm interested in studying saints' lives. And one of the first things you learn when you study early medieval saints' lives is you can't take them at face value, at least not without qualification. Because saints' lives are always not self-interested, but interested. You don't write a saint's life unless you're really enthusiastic about the guy you're writing the life. For, right? Because he's your hero. He's your people's hero. So the stories tend to grow. And sometimes, sometimes, maybe just the tiniest little bit of bias starts to creep in. And so if you look at different saints' lives, you can see different houses having their saints basically fight each other, different monastic houses. So Ripon, they've got their saint, Wilfred, and Wilfred's great because he brought Roman discipline to those awful English, and he showed those awful English how to be good Catholics. That's what the Ripon saint's life says. Then the rival house, Lindisfarne, has their saint's life where they say, no, 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 St. Cuthbert's really the great guy because he listened to Rome, but he preserved the English traditions and the English piety. And they sort of go back and forth and back and forth. And there's this one-upmanship that, that creeps into saint's lives. St. Patrick isn't immune to this. And as his fame grows, in fact, he becomes one of the people other saints' lives writers are most interested in one-upping. I'll give you two examples. There's a, a Carolingian life written by Herrick of Auxerre about the Bishop Germanus. And this life says this, Bishop Germanus is gloried in his students because the teacher is glorified by his students. St. Germanus' greatest pupil, according to the saint's life, was none other than St. Patrick who studied with him for 18 years and learned everything he knew from St. Germanus. The implication of this is, well, Patrick is good, but St. Germanus is better. Now, of course, that's from Germanus' pupils. That's from his community. Another more outrageous saint's life comes from the 11th century. It's the life of St. David of Wales. I will preface this by saying I don't believe a word of it. 
This is not probably something that actually happened. But according to the life of St. David of Wales, St. Patrick, fresh from being consecrated bishop, is looking for a place to settle down and preach the gospel. St. Patrick has a burning heart. He knows where he's supposed to go. He's supposed to go to Wales, according to the life of St. David of Wales. And then an angel comes to him and says, you can't go to Wales. Wales is going to belong to somebody who's born 30 years after you, this, this David. You can't evangelize Wales. And according to this saint's life, Patrick is so upset, he starts to throw a tantrum. He says that he's going to abandon his faith in Christ because he can't have Wales. Then the angel says, you can have Ireland as a consolation prize. Now, again, I don't believe a word of this. This is not something that actually happened. But this is the danger of taking late saints' lives at face value. And so many of the great stories, so many of the moving stories, come from these late saints' lives. Now, I don't want to say they're worthless. They're, they're, they're good stories, and they can move you to faith. They can move you to piety. And they, they have a real good purpose behind them. But you've got to be just the tiniest bit careful. Now, the other reason why I'm cautious about these late lives is they can obscure something that I find much more interesting. And I, I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why we do this. We rely really, really heavily on the late lives of St. Patrick to round out the story, when actually you have two things written by Patrick himself in his own words, in his own language, that we know were written by him. These two texts, the first one is called the Epistle to Caroticus. The second one is called St. Patrick's Confession. The Epistle to Caroticus was written to a British chieftain whose name was probably something like Caradic. Caradic was a nominal Christian, and in the chaos of the ending years of the Roman Empire and the Dark Ages, Caradic, Caroticus, invades Ireland, as his people have been doing for centuries, and attacks one of St. Patrick's communities kills the Christians there, and enslaves others and takes them back to Britain. And Patrick writes in great fury to Caracas, begging, pleading, threatening, you can't attack Christians, you've slain these people, newly come from their baptism, still wearing their white baptismal garments, you need to repent, you are excommunicated, and it's, it's a powerful text. The other one is St. Is Patrick's Confession. We call it confession, it's almost more of an apologia pro vita sua, right? It's explaining what his life has been, and it's giving a justification and a defense for how he's conducted his life, and it, then it's ultimately an argument about what his life all means. And these two texts, they are really precious. They're precious in one sense because, take this with a grain of salt, because they're so bad. And now, when I, say, when, when I say they're bad, I don't actually mean they're bad. I love reading them. But from classical literary standards, St. Patrick didn't know what he was doing. He'll tell you repeatedly in the confession that he, would, he never had a chance to be educated. He never had a chance to learn how to write well. He's writing in a language that's basically a second language. He never really learned Latin. So it's really rough stuff. It's really roughly written. And he can't barely get his words across. And this is, in my mind, one of the greatest gifts of St. Patrick. Because when you're reading a skilled writer, when you're reading somebody who's mastered the art of writing, there's always this little question. Is this really what they think? Is this really them? Or is this an effect that they're trying to pull off, right? 
is, is this the writer's real heart or is this just a slick trick? With Patrick, there's never this doubt. He's just trying to communicate. He's just trying to get his words across. And so we get this almost unmediated glimpse into the mind and the heart of the saint himself through these two writings. And that's going to be what we're going to be studying tonight. So we've got three big things that I want to do tonight. The first thing that I'd like to do is reconstruct St. Patrick's life as we can get it from his writings. Second, we're going to look at how St. Patrick uses the Bible in his, uh, in his confession. Finally, we're going to look at the peculiar humility of St. Patrick. And if we can get through those three things, I'll be pretty happy. So here's the life of St. Patrick, according to St. Patrick himself. He's born at Benavum Tiburnier. We have no idea where this is. No idea whatsoever. A variety of things have been suggested for Benavum Tiburnier. People mostly think it's probably west coast of England, somewhere from about Carlisle down to about Dorset. A lot of people favor this estuary here, the Severn Estuary, but we don't really know. He's from somewhere off the coast of England, but he's born in Benavum Tibernier. He's got an interesting pedigree. His grandfather, Cotitus, is a priest. His father, Calpurnius, is a deacon and a curian. Now, this sounds like a good pedigree, right? Father's a deacon, grandfather's a priest. But from all we can tell from Patrick's own admission, he lives a very comfortable and very, very lax childhood. He says in the Confessions, Confession 1, that he did not know the true God. Later, he'll talk about how he never believed in God before he was captured by the Irish. That's weird, right? He says that he had turned away from God, didn't keep the commandments. He says he didn't listen to the priests. His grandfather's a priest. What's wrong with this picture here? Now, it's of course possible that holy men can have impious children, but it's probably something a little bit more complicated. The late Roman Empire is a complicated place. And one of the more convincing explanations of Patrick's childhood I've encountered goes something like this. The decurial class, his father's the decurian. These people had a really horrible life in the late Roman Empire. They're, they're civic officials and they're tax collectors. Now, being a tax collector in early Roman Empire times is a fine thing. The economy is going well enough. You can easily get the taxes. You can grow comfortable with this. Think Zacchaeus or something like Zacchaeus. In the late Roman Empire, when the economy falters, things get bad and things get awkward. Because in the late Roman Empire, when the economy stagnates, it's harder to raise taxes. But the people of the decurial class who are responsible for raising taxes are still responsible for coming up with the same amount of money. But the people don't have any money. And so if you can't get the money from the people, you have to make up the shortfall yourself. And this becomes crippling for this class of people, the upper, but not the highest upper class in the late Roman Empire. There's one way to get out. You can get out if you take holy orders. If you take holy orders, you're freed from your civic duties. So there's a suggestion that Calpurnius might only have become a deacon in order to escape taxation, which might explain Patrick just a little bit. At age 16, then, Patrick is captured by Irish raiders. He says he's captured with thousands of people. He probably means just a lot of people. He spends the next six years tending sheep. We don't know for who. We don't know exactly where. And praying. He says that he would say as many as 100 prayers every day, nearly as many every night. 
And this is when St. Patrick's conversion really, really take, takes root and really transforms him. He was as lukewarm or as cold as you can be as a child. Now in the confessions, he describes himself as fervent, heated up, boiling. And because the love of God is so hot in his heart, he doesn't even mind being out in the, in the wilderness. He doesn't mind the sleet and the snow and the rain. He doesn't mind being with the sheep because he has God. And after this six years of penance and prayer and, and training, Patrick receives a dream. The dream says, it's good that you fasted because now your ship is ready. He walks 200 miles through Ireland. He finds a ship and escapes to either Britain or Gaul. We don't know where they land in the middle of a forest. And they have to spend almost a month walking through the forest. If any of you know about St. Patrick's Greyhounds, this is where St. Patrick's Greyhounds enter the story. Everything's fairly clear and fairly pat up through this point. Then things get messy because we don't know what St. Patrick does between the time he escapes and the time when he's a bishop in Ireland. So there are about 20 to 30 years where we don't know exactly what's happening. We know at some point he's in Britain. He, he has a dream, a vision. He gets the letter from Victoricus, and this is something that we all know about, right? The voice of the Irish comes, right? The people from the Western Sea, by the woods of Vauclet, they're calling to you, Patrick. We ask thee, boy, come and dwell among us once more. That's Confessions 23. But it's not an easy process to get back because at some point he's got to be ordained bishop. Maybe around age 45. We're not quite sure, but best guess would be 45 to 50. He's nominated for the episcopacy. Oh, but there are problems with this, right? He's obviously a candidate, and a lot of people support him. But the elders, the higher-ranking people, have questions. They're probably worried about his education. They're probably worried about his training. And so they start to push back. And when the pushback reaches a critical mass, one of his best friends turns on him. And this betrayal is at the heart of the confessions. This best friend reveals a sin that Patrick had committed, he says, 30 years previously when he was 15. So this can be, he confessed it 30 years ago or he did it 30 years ago. If it's, he did it 30 years ago, this happens when he's 45. If he confessed it 40 year, or 30 years ago, it's probably more like 55. He confessed the sin a long time ago. It's dead, it's gone, it's buried, but it's scandal enough that at age 45 or 50, St. Patrick is denied consecration. Somehow, some way, one year, two year, five years after this, he's finally ordained bishop, and what he calls his laborious episcopate begins. This is the part of the story where I get very, very irritated at our friend St. Patrick, because this is the part of the story where things are going to get good, right? He's the bishop now. He's going to Ireland. This is the part where we're going to fight Druids. We're going to convert kings. We're going to do miracles. We're going to get all the exciting things happening. Here's what St. Patrick gives us. <clears throat> now, it would be tedious to give a detailed account of all my labors or even a part of them. I'm going to repeat that, right? Right where we're all interested. St. Patrick says, it would be tedious to give a detailed account of all my labors or even a part of them. He's not going to tell you the story. Here's what he'll tell you. He'll give you a sense that it is a hard life. He'll give you a sense that it is a hard job. He tells you in Confessions 35 that he's been in mortal danger 12 times. He's in constant fear for his life because people are always laying traps for him. He says, there have been numerous plots to kill me. 
and now I'm quoting directly, but I do not want to bore my readers because the one thing that nobody likes to read about are plots for murder and daring escapes. I don't want to bore you. Confessions 52, kings want to kill him. Confessions 53, daily I expect murder, fraud, or captivity. We even learn that he's imprisoned in Ireland for a while. They take him captive again. Oh, and then by the way, there's that British chieftain, Caroticus, who invades and kills a bunch of his people, right? We don't know how that wraps up. Instead, the picture that St. Patrick gives us, it looks almost like any missionary life at any stage of the church ever. His daily concerns, the things that he's really worked up about here in the confessions, it sounds like office manager stuff. He has to address management of funds, right? Because he's got sponsors for the mission, probably in Britain, who are encouraging him and pushing him on, right? And, and funding the mission. And they're worried about how he's spending their money because they've heard he's bribing kings. Well, of course he's bribing kings. You can only get to preach in their kingdoms if you pay them. So he has to address things like that. He has to address rumors about his conduct and say, no, I, I am on the up and up. So he has to deal with all this petty little stuff. And this is the picture he gives us in the confessions and not all the big glorious stuff. And that's the life of our great St. Patrick. He tells us the humble things. He says the big things are boring and that's what he gives us. <laughs> Now, you'll note that I didn't say when any of this actually happens. I didn't say when it happens. I, I give you St. Patrick's age. I don't give you firm dates just because we don't know. The whole St. Patrick story, we know it has to sort of wrap up by, oh, the year 500, 510 or so, because he refers to pagan Franks and the Franks become Christian around 508. So can't be later than that. Can't be much earlier than 400. It can't happen much earlier than that, although some people have tried to put him as far back as 180. AD, which is stupid. But then between the first half of the fifth century, the second half of the fifth century, there are fights nobody really knows. Some people say he died in 461. Some people say he died in 493. If I had to lay money, I'd say he's probably latter half of the fifth century. I'd say his, his missionary activity is probably mostly from the 450s to like 480s, 490s. But at this point, we're just doing educated guesswork. And this is the life of St. Patrick. Now, Turning from the details of the life that we all know, I'd really like to turn now to the things that make his own writings so very interesting. All my quotations from St. Patrick's Confessions here are coming from the ancient Christian writers, uh, translated Ludwig Bieler. Now, if you look closely there, you would have seen a lot of italics, italicized words everywhere. Bieler gives you italics every time St. Patrick is directly quoting scripture. And if you flip through this volume, you'll see an awful, awful lot of italics. There are over a hundred different biblical passages cited there in the Confessions. The Confession of St. Patrick is only 62 chapters, and by chapter I mean like somewhat lengthy paragraphs long. So 62 paragraphs, over a hundred biblical citations. He's quoting the Bible all the time. All right? It's not just that he's quoting the Bible all the time. It's that he only quotes the Bible. He only ever quotes the Bible. He doesn't draw on any other source. We have not been able to identify a single set source other than scripture that he uses. It's almost like he's sort of taken St. Paul as a model, right? St. Paul was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Patrick seems determined to know nothing other than scripture. But the way he uses scripture is funny too. 
If you study your patristic fathers, people from the age of St. Patrick, you'll know that they have this really polished style of exegesis, right? You read your Augustine or you read your Origen and you'll find their, their really elegant allegories. You'll find other schools that delve into the history and delve into sort of the science of the world in Palestine. You've got all these different highly developed schools of, of exegesis. Patrick, God bless him, and I, I mean that literally, shows no skill in exegesis whatsoever because he's never learned. All he's learned really, really well is the scripture. And instead of interpreting the scripture, this is going to sound dorky, but I'm going to say it. Instead of interpreting scripture, Patrick lets scripture interpret him. He interprets his own life through scripture rather than explaining what scriptural passages mean, right? It's a living word for him, and it sort of frames his entire life. So we've got some quotes from Patrick's confessions. Let's look at this first quote, Confessions 1. Here he's talking about his captivity. He's talking about why he was captured. And this is, again, quoting from Ludwig Bieler's translation. And the Lord brought over us the wrath of his anger and scattered us among many nations, even unto the utmost part of the earth. So we've got that one big italicized section here. And that one big italicized section is not one, but it's three biblical passages. It's Isaiah 42, 25. That's the first little bit. The scattered us among many nations is Jeremiah 9, 16 or Tobit 13, 15. And then, even unto the utmost parts of the earth, is Acts 13.47. So, not only does he know scripture, he knows it well enough that he, okay, I need a phrase about God's anger, I need a phrase about scattering the people, I need a phrase about the utmost ends of the earth, and he fuses it all together, and there we go. And I should note that if we're being responsible scriptural scholars here, this is horrible. It's completely out of context, even unto the utmost parts of the earth. That's from the Acts of the Apostle St. Paul is talking. He's not talking about people being captive. He's talking about his own missionary activity, right? Well, but then again, his own missionary activity is the light of the Gentiles. And it looks like almost Patrick is interpreting his own life in the light of St. Paul. So maybe it's not actually so, so completely unskilled. We see more of this in Confessions 53, the next little handout. Here he's addressing claims that he's wasted the money of his mission. He's, he's spent all the money, and he should be ashamed for managing funds so poorly. He says, yes, I've spent all the money. I'm not sorry for it. Indeed, the money I've spent is not enough for me. I still spend and shall spend more. God has power to grant me afterwards, now quoting St. Paul again, that I myself may be spent for your souls. He's living and speaking and understanding who he is according to who St. Paul was, right? St. Paul says, the imitators of me, like I'm an imitator of Christ. This is exactly what St. Patrick is trying to do here. The life of St. Paul gives his own life meaning. The classic example of this comes from Confessions 40. This is the heart of the work. Now, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of Patrick's readers, right? And these are people who lots of them don't. They're not so sure about this Patrick guy, right? Again, they oppose his ordination. They weren't sure if he was a good idea. It was a good idea to consecrate him. Now they think he's wasting time, wasting money. Do we really want to bother converting all those heathen Irish anyway? Confessions 40 is the heart of the work. I only give you the tiniest bit of it. Hence, it was most necessary to spread our nets so that a great multitude and throng might be caught for God and that there be clerics everywhere to baptize and exhort people in need and want. As the Lord in the gospel exhorts, states, and teaches, saying, then we get the long quote from Matthew 28, 19. 
I stopped it there. Because if I didn't stop it here at Matthew 28, 19, the rest of my handout would be taken up with successive biblical quotes where Patrick's quoting from the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, 15. Again, from Matthew, Matthew 24, 14, Acts 2, 17, Romans 9, 25, just filling up a whole page of biblical quotations saying how necessary it is to go teach all the nations. And now if you're the skeptic of St. Patrick, you've just been hit by this freight train of biblical citations, and it's kind of hard to argue that. St. Patrick's love for scripture and his, his, the degree to which he's ingested it and, and devoured it and be, made it become a part of him, it's impressive. I don't know anyone who talks like this. I don't know anyone who thinks like this. Confessions 50 is maybe my favorite example of this. Here, what's interesting is not the italicized part. He's just quoting from the book of Kings there. It's the not italicized part. Here, he's addressing accusations of simony, accusations that he's been extorting money from his flock. He says, when I baptized so many thousands of people that I perhaps expect from them as a reward so much as half a screple, and a screple is just a small, insignificant coin, all right? Tell me and I will restore it to you. That's from Kings. Or when the Lord ordained clerics everywhere through my unworthy person, and I conferred the ministry upon them for free, if I ask any of them as much as the price of my shoes, speak against me and I will return it to you. So cut out the italicized part. Cut out where he's actually quoting scripture and run this through your mind. You've got a missionary who's been preaching the word, and there's a concern about whether or not he's taking money from his flock, whether he can take money from his flock. He maintains that he can take money, he'd be, he'd be right to take money, but that he has never, under any circumstances, taken money for his preaching. Does that sound familiar? It should sound a little familiar. The missionary says he could take money, hasn't take, taken money. This is St. Paul from 1 Corinthians 9. This is directly inspired by 1 Corinthians 9. St. Patrick quotes scripture even when he's not trying to quote scripture. He's quoting St. Paul's experience without actually quoting St. Paul's words because this is the air he lives and breathes, right? He knows it inside and out, so it's only natural that he should talk this way. It's only natural that he should do this. This brings us to what I think is the most interesting, certainly funniest, biblical quotation in St. Patrick. Confessions 11, he's addressing, as he does many, many times, his feelings of inadequacy, the fact that he doesn't know as much as other preachers, the fact that he, he's not as educated as he should be. And then he says, quoting Ecclesiasticus or Sirach, if, if that's the same, same book, the spirit witnesses that even rusticity, Rusticity being sort of backwoodsiness, right? Country manners, lack of education, crudeness. Even rusticity was created by God. Now, this quotation here of Sirach, it's either pathetic or it's hilarious or it's brilliant. And it might be all three. You see, here's the problem. St. Patrick, as he says many, many times, doesn't know Latin very well. And what Sirach says, it doesn't say rusticity was created by God. It says farm work was created by God. Sirach is speaking to, to the people and says, do not despise hard labor, 
nor the farm work, nor the work on work in the fields that God has ordained. Uh, Rusticationum creatum ad Deo, I think is how it goes in St. Patrick's Bible. But Patrick doesn't know his Latin, so he makes a rookie mistake. This is what the Latin Bible actually has, rusticatio. This is how St. Patrick reads it, rusticitas. These are two words that are related in their root. They're very, very similar. But darn it, they mean completely different things. They mean as different things as the word gentile and gentle mean, right? Gentile and gentle come from the same word. But boy, Gentile and gentle don't mean the same thing. What St. Patrick does is he, he, sees, he sees Ecclesiasticus saying, don't despise hard labor. And he reads it to say, don't despise country bumpkins. So he uses it to defend himself. Hey, I'm just a country bumpkin, but God's word says that country bumpkins were created by God. <sighs> That's pathetic, right? Because he's trying to say, it's okay that I'm unlearned, and he demonstrates his lack of learning by the fact that he can't even read Latin. Oh my gosh. Now that's how most people read it. That poor Patrick, poor bumbling Patrick doesn't know what he's doing. And if that's true, it is kind of funny. It actually is kind of funny. But let's look at it a different way too. Because this could be the most brilliant biblical citation that Patrick actually does, where he's saying, he knows he's misquoting it, and he goes on in the next chapter to talk about how rustic he is, right? But let's see. Farm labor created by God. If you think, get, get the biblical imagery in your mind, you think about farm labor, working on a farm. This can be the literal farm, but it can also be the Lord's vineyard. You think of St. Patrick's own continual references to his hard labor, his hard labor, his hard labor. And all of a sudden, for him to say, hard labor, farm labor, and maybe, yeah, maybe the lack of polish that comes with it, God's okay with those things. If you're the sort of person who points and laughs at that, whew, you've got more guts than I do, right? Because he's the laborer in the Lord's vineyard. Ecclesiasticus, interpreted correctly, tells you you can't despise that. And if you can't despise the labor that he's doing, can you despise him for talking and acting and looking like a laborer? I don't think he can. I, I, think, I think there's a brilliant pun there by Patrick. If he didn't intend it, boy, oh boy, does it work. And this brings us to our next big section. St. Patrick is always, always, always focused on just how much he has to learn, just how much he has to know. That bit in Confessions 11 where he's anxious about his rusticity, this is not a one-off. He begins and ends and continues his works with all these repeated references to all the things he just doesn't know. And before we do this, I, I should say, every medieval person does this. There's a thing called a humility topos. It's a standard polite way to begin talking. You say, oh my gosh, I could never possibly do justice to this subject that I'm going to talk about. And then you talk about it. And some of the best and most brilliant medieval writers do this because it's just what you do. It would be tempting to read what St. Patrick does, saying, I'm, I don't know anything, I don't know anything, as a humility topos. The problem is, he does it a lot. And he seems to actually mean it. And given his, the state of his Latin, which is kind of a mess, he's probably, he's probably sincere. One scholar says that St. Patrick manifests not a humility, just the polite humility, but a pathological self-abasement. He's got almost a compulsive tick that he has to make fun of himself. I think that's going too far. I, I don't think that's quite, that's quite right. 
though it does make sense for Patrick to be insecure. And I, before we go into why or how he's so humble, I'm going to tell you why he's so humble. He's so humble, remember, because he wasted his youth. He's so humble because he didn't spend those first 16 years learning scripture, learning Latin, learning the things he'd need to be a really top-notch biblical scholar, preacher, bishop. He wasted those years. Then he had the six years with the sheep. And even if he had exemplary piety, uh, sheep don't do a good, great job with the whole education thing. The earliest he can have started studying was around 22, but we don't have any great evidence that he spent significant time learning from the great teachers of the day. So what does he know? We've seen that he knows the Bible. His Latin never gets up to snuff. He doesn't know much, okay? But what he knows, he really knows. And this comes through again and again and again in the Confessions and in Caroticus. So, so just to take examples, let's see here. Some of the most famous words from, uh, from all of Ireland. I am Patrick, a sinner, most unlearned, least of all the faithful, and utterly despised by many. That, that's, that's a start, right? Sinner, unlearned, least of the faithful, utterly despised. That's who I am. If you go to Caroticus, I, Patrick, a sinner, unlearned, resident in Ireland, declare myself to be a bishop. Most assuredly, I believe that what I am, I have received from God. Now, Patrick's sense of unworthiness becomes a continual running theme throughout all these works. A brief summary. He refers to his poor education, lack of skill, and general sort of backwoodsiness, lack of education, right? In Confessions 1, 2, 6, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 46, 49, and 62. That's over one-sixth of the entire chapters in the Confessions. He does this several more times in the letter to Caroticus. So in one sense, uh, Hansen, who's the scholar who says that he has the pathological self-abasement, seems right. I mean, why do you keep having to come back and remind us that you don't know everything, Patrick? We get it already. Well, maybe it's pathological. I doubt it. I, I think there's a reason for it. So check this out here, right? Confessions 13. Wherefore then be astonished, ye great and ye little that fear God, and you men of letters on your estates. Listen and pour over this. Who was it that roused me up? Fool that I am, from the midst of those who in the eyes of men are wise, and expert in law, and powerful in word, and in everything. He's writing to the men of letters on their estates. Uh, the Latin is, so, you lordly rhetoricians, you people who know better than I am, you people who are so satisfied in your learning, pay attention. I'm nothing. He's very clear that he's nothing. But if you go back to a uh, letter to Caracas 1, what I am, I received from God. Thinking back to all the British clerics who have the great education, but who aren't in Ireland, right? You lordly rhetoricians. You men of letters on your estates, who roused me up? And then that sequence, those who in the eyes of men are wise and expert in law and powerful in word and everything. Patrick isn't just humble. Patrick wants you to share that humility. 
Because God can work with Patrick. This is his message. If he can work with me, he can work with anybody. And for all of you who are self-satisfied, he's not going to work with you. That last sequence, wise, expert, law, powerful in word, this has an, an echo of 1 Corinthians 20 in it, right? Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Where are the people who have all the power? Where are the people who have all the knowledge? They're not called. But God has called Patrick. And the fact that Patrick, unlearned, rustic, humble that he is, has become useful, this all redounds to God's praise. Confessions 38. I am very much God's debtor who gave me such great grace that many people were, were reborn in God through me and afterwards confirmed and that clerics were ordained for them everywhere. You catch what he did there. I'm God's debtor. Why? Not because I wasted my youth. Not because I've sinned in the past. Not because I'm, all, I'm God's debtor because God has chosen me for this work. I'm God's debtor because of the success that God has given me. I didn't deserve the success. I'm in debt to God because I risked my life to go back to the people who enslaved me to preach the gospel to them. And because it kind of worked, is what Patrick is saying. He knows he's the unprofitable servant from the parable who's only done what's commanded him to do when he's done everything he can. This leads up to the absolutely beautiful conclusion of the Confessions. I pray those who believe and fear God, whosoever deigns to look at or receive this writing of Patrick, a sinner, unlearned, that he is composed in Ireland, that no one should ever say that it was my ignorance if I did or showed forth anything however small according to God's good pleasure, but let this be your conclusion and let it be so thought that as is the perfect truth, it was the gift of God. Now, Ludwig Bieler's translation is very, very nice. He tries to keep Patrick's word order as best he can. Sometimes it results in confusing passages. This one's kind of confusing. So, so let's translate the translation, okay? If you receive this writing, which Patrick a sinner, unlearned, has composed in, in Ireland, don't think that it was dumb old me. That's what it means when he says my ignorance. My ignorance is the way he refers to himself. He calls himself my ignorance. He calls himself my littleness. The sense is dumb old me, little old me. Don't think it was me, stupid that I am, that did all this. Don't think it was me, ignorant as I am, that did all these good things. It wasn't me. It's the gift of God. And this is what Patrick is ultimately confessing. He's telling his story. But by telling his story, he's telling the story of God's grace at work. He's showing how, though he's nothing, and because he's nothing, God's grace can be seen and praised and honored all the more clearly. I'd like to end with a little reflection on the legacy of Patrick. This is my confession before he dies, he says, writing the, writing the confession. He expects that he's not going to live very long after. We don't know how long he lived, but we can assess where Ireland is at the time of his death. Ireland didn't convert so easily, as his later biographers said, right? There are setbacks, and there are successes, and there are failures. He baptizes a lot of people. Do they all really live it? Uh, maybe, maybe not. He gets some monastic community started. Do they, do they flourish? Some, but not immediately. He has setbacks. He has Caroticus come. He writes the letter to Caroticus. We don't know if anything good came of it. 
Patrick's life ends kind of in mystery, right? He's had some success. He's gone where no man has gone before, boldly, right? Boldly gone where no man has gone before to preach the gospel. And he's met success, but the state of Ireland is still sort of up for grabs. We don't even know when he died. Again, 493, 461, nah, we don't know. We don't know for sure where he was buried. Tradition says in County Down, but we don't know. He sort of rides off into the sunset, uncertainly. So what can we say for this man? What can we say for this great saint who gives us these tantalizing glimpses but doesn't give us, doesn't give us everything? I'm going to do something that's a little goofy, but I think St. Patrick would approve. I'm just going to quote some scripture loosely connected as a reflection on his life. Now, again, I, th I think he, he would prove. He gave up everything for Christ. In his letter to Caracas, he talks about how he had it all. He was the son of a noble family. He had it all. He let all that go. Like St. Paul, all those things that are gained, he counted loss for Christ. He became poor for the Irish. But we know that blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't wise. He wasn't educated. He wasn't self-satisfied. But consider your calling, St. Paul says in Corinthians. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many not mighty, not many noble. But the foolish things of the world hath God chosen that he can confound the wise, and the weak things that God has chosen that he may confound the strong. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. So that he who glories, glories in the Lord. In his confessions, Patrick compares his youth to being a stone lying in the mud, which for no merit of his own, God has raised up out of the mud and dusted off and chosen to build something beautiful out of. In a way, he's become conformed to Christ. The stone that the builders rejected becomes the head of the corner. Patrick's life is a testament to that. And in ways, if you read the confession and the epistle to Caroticus carefully, he sort of becomes a living magnifica. The Lord has regarded the lowest state of his servant. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And so with Patrick, we glorify the Lord. And I'd like to call your attention back to that breastplate of St. Patrick that Father read to us at the beginning of our, our time here tonight. Christ protect me today. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. That's ultimately the message of the confession. I, Patrick, sinner, unlearned, through my littleness, let God be glorified. Christ in me, Christ through me, Christ with me, Christ in everyone who thinks of me. That's the life of St. Patrick, and if we can carry any of that forward uh, amidst the corned beef and cabbage and everything else, we can be thankful enough for that. But that was a wonderful walk through the life and writings of uh, St. Patrick. I especially liked at the end where you compared his life to Scripture, the scriptural verses, and you get a glimpse really how gospel-centered, how Christ-centered St. Patrick's life was. Oh, it's, it's terrifying, right? I mean... Here's a guy who the one thing he'll tell you about himself is I don't know anything. And he lives and breathes scripture like no one I've ever met, right? Exactly. And this is what that we could all be so stupid, right?
<laughs> Great. So uh, now we'll take a couple of questions. Terrence asks, is it accurate to consider Patrick a mystic? Or should we look upon Patrick as a saint who experienced mystical moments? Oh, boy. That's a beautiful question. I'm not going to, and you know what, I, I'm not going to answer it. I'm not going to answer it firmly. I, I don't think there's enough, quite enough evidence to, to make that judgment. The one thing that I'll say is St. Patrick is definitely in tune to the spiritual life and definitely in tune to the interior life. One of the big Pauline verses that comes up an awful lot in Patrick is, I don't know, God knows. I, I know not, God knows. This is where he's quoting St. Paul who, you know, wrapped up to the heavens, in the body or not, I don't know, God knows, is what he's referring to. And he's continually praying in the inner man. And sometimes you get from Patrick in the Confessions that the Holy Spirit is praying in him even when he doesn't have the words, which certainly seems to tend towards mysticism, but you'd be building the case on something like three incidences in the Confessions. So I, I, I back off from making a firm judgment on that. We also have another question. So the genre of a confession, we have Augustine's confession, we have St. Patrick's confessions. Are there any other early church fathers' confessions? Are there? <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing from the same time period, nothing quite like that, right? And of course, Patrick's confession is something quite a bit different than Augustine's confession. Augustine's confession is a much more polished, much more cohesive work. Patrick maybe got the idea to do the confession from Augustine. However, his confession is something that is radically, radically different. Again, it's more of an apologia and more of, it's half apologia, half praise of God's grace. So I'd be hesitant to put it in the, in the same category. If you're talking like spiritual autobiography, Augustine and Patrick are, are, the, two, are the two fifth century examples that everyone goes to. Pro-Patrick in Ireland is a major pilgrimage site, and apparently Patrick prayed and fasted on this mountain for 40 days during Lent. Is this true, or is this just one of the mythical Patrick? Okay, and now, now, now we need to be really, really careful, right? There are all sorts of Patrick pilgrimage sites. Some of them strike me as unlikely to be valid. Old Kilpatrick in Scotland, I don't think Patrick was born 100 miles north of Hadrian's Wall. I, I really don't think that's true. As to the other pilgrimage sites, most of these are going to be drawn from long-standing Irish tradition, and many of them are drawn from Mirku and Tirakhan's lives of Patrick, and these come from about, about 150 years after Patrick. Now, all that said, I think it would be foolish to dismiss out of hand the idea that Patrick fasted on, on such and such mountain, the idea that Patrick lit the Easter Easter fire on Terra, the fact that Patrick was buried in County Down. I wouldn't dismiss any of those things out of hand. All I, all I would say is for each one of them, you need to do a little bit more evaluation and a little bit more careful study. The one thing that happens whenever you have a really famous saint is everyone wants to associate themselves with him as clearly, as easily as you can, right? As neatly as you can, because, well, if Patrick was here, we're going to tell you about it. And maybe if we think Patrick was here, we'll tell you about it too. So so for each site, you, you need to do a little bit more work. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that a little bit of work is always required to, to sift through the varying layers of, uh, of legend and story and history. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. 
If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.